Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Isolation. Spiritual growth happens in the context of community with other people. Faith gets a chance to be acted out and demonstrated when we're in the context of relationship with other people who are also on a spiritual journey. And so throughout the series, we've been reminding each other that the spiritual life is a social life. But for Christians, we've also discovered in this series that our social lives are spiritual. Our social life is actually a spiritual endeavor. And that's because the human relationships that we are involved in, they create an opportunity, they create a venue where we can watch God at work, like right before our very eyes. We can see God working in between us and the people that we're connected to and strengthening those relationships. We can watch God answering people's prayers and helping people grow. When disciples share their spiritual experience together, God uses that to grow our faith even stronger. And so the gist of this whole series that we've been working our way through is that our vertical relationship with God has direct impact on our horizontal relationships with people. But at the same time, our horizontal relationships with people can help to strengthen our vertical connection to God. It's this beautiful cycle, this beautiful rhythm, this beautiful system that God has created that keeps us growing when we share our spiritual selves. But it's a cycle that's delicate. And today we're talking about this cycle's greatest vulnerability. We're talking about the kryptonite of spiritual community today because our faith connections have this particular Achilles heel and it all has to do with the words that come out of our mouths. You know about words, right? There were a few years ago that Bridgestone Tires aired a Super Bowl commercial. It featured these two men working side by side in a cubicle. I'm actually gonna show you the silent version of this video, but one of these men sends an email to the other, which triggers a smile, followed by sudden alarm when his cubicle mate says, Rod, you sent this email reply all. You accidentally hit reply all, and panic comes across Rod's face, and suddenly he's sprinting down the hallway, screaming at the top of his lungs. He's grabbing everybody's devices on his way out, on his way to his car, because he's got to drive to the other office complexes that belong to his company. And he's running through every office space, every meeting room, and he's snatching up computers and cell phones and ripping cords out of the wall. He finds his coworkers who were off the work that day, the ones who were out hiking in the woods or have gone to the movies or are sitting at a restaurant. And he finds every recipient of that email and he rips their device out of their hands so that they won't be able to read the message that he inadvertently sent. You see, Rod knew what all of us know instinctively, which is that words are powerful, right? Words can even be 
dangerous. And when Rod inadvertently sent whatever it was that he wrote to a larger audience than he intended, he knew that he had messed up big time because words carry a lot of weight, right? You remember the lie that they told you on the playground in elementary school, that mantra that they used to chant where they would say, sticks and stones may break my bones, remember? But words will never hurt me, they said. Everybody that ever said it knew it wasn't true. They knew it wasn't true. In fact, everybody, everybody knows that words can be hurtful. In fact, that, that mantra only got repeated after words had been used hurtfully. That's when they say it. And the truer version of that mantra would have said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can do permanent damage. Because the truth is that each and every one of us has core memories inside of moments in our lives when the words that were said to us stung. We've got core memories of moments when somebody spoke to us in a way where we were victimized by their cruel and angry and insulting words. And sadly, most of us have used our words to hurt other people too. I mean, we could all stand up today and we could all probably identify regrets that we have, regrets that we carry about the words that were spoken to us and the words that we spoke to somebody else. And since all of those words are in the past, those historic wounds are only going to heal through some combination of reconciliation and therapy and time. But today, today we've got a responsibility to stop using words as a weapon. We've got an obligation to each other to quit weaponizing our words. And that's particularly difficult to do because in our culture and in our hearts, doesn't it sometimes just feel like they've got it coming? Doesn't it just sometimes feel like somebody needs to be put in their place? Somebody needs to be told exactly what's wrong with what they're doing. The fact is that sometimes we relish the idea of putting somebody else in their place, don't we? Sometimes we savor the thought of telling off that jerk, telling off that bully, telling off the slacker, telling off the idiot who's been making our day harder. I mean, it happens in traffic. It happens in customer service phone calls. It happens at work. I've been told it happens on the internet once in a while, you know, and it also happens at home and it happens in the church among our family. In fact, so much of the time, the potential for our relationships together gets bound and restricted by the way we talk to one another and the way we talk about one another and the things that we've said to each other in the past. Well, what we're going to discover together today is that those words that we exchange in these horizontal relationships, the words that we share with one another, they're actually a reflection of the strength of our vertical relationship with God. When we speak to one another in a way that is less than encouraging, less than beneficial, it's actually an indicator that there's something wrong in that vertical relationship. And the way that we use our words is a matter of faith. It's a matter of our deepest 
convictions. The way that we speak to one another matters, but it's not always for the same reasons that you think, which is why today I want us to point our attention to one particular whole book in the New Testament portion of your Bible. If you've got a Bible with you, you can join us there. Uh, We're going to be in the New Testament book of James, which is very near the end of the entire Bible. And I want to point your attention there because James was given the wisdom to understand that the way we speak to others is actually a window into our own hearts. The way that we talk to other people is an unmistakable measure of the health of our souls. And that's why we're going to look at James because he's got this special wisdom for us today. But in case you're not familiar with the book of James, I want to familiarize you with this because James has maybe the most compelling origin story of any book in the entire Bible because James is a guy who grew up in the same household as Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, to share a bedroom or share a, you know, share a dinner table every night of your growing up years with Jesus. I mean, that's bound to be a little bit of pressure. We don't learn a whole lot in the Bible about Jesus's siblings. Here's what we do know. We know that he had at least four brothers and he had at least two sisters. And we also know that for a while, his brothers tried to stop Jesus from carrying out his ministry and drawing so much attention to himself. In fact, when Jesus started attracting large crowds that were coming to listen to him teach and coming to watch and see what miracle he would perform next. When Jesus started making controversial claims about his identity and his mission, his brothers suspected that he might be having a mental break. His brothers suspected that he might be delusional, that he might be out of his mind. And so they showed up and tried to carry him home. The brothers showed up and tried to say, everybody, nothing to see here. We're taking him with us. And Jesus wouldn't go. But they were trying to rein him back in because they didn't believe anything that he was saying about himself. Jesus' own brothers did not believe the claims that he was making about his identity. And if you think about it, I mean, how challenging would it be for you to be convinced that your brother was the son of God, right? I mean, like this is a tall order for somebody that grows up in the same household with you, but something along the way changed for James. James was a guy who spent the first half of his life not only doubting, but denying his brother's teaching, denying his brother's claims. He was trying to make his brother shut up for the sake of the safety of their family and to keep their reputation, you know, in order. He was trying to protect the family by making Jesus stop talking. And then when that didn't work, his brother goes and gets killed by people who are really good at killing folks. His brother goes and gets killed in this gruesome public manner. There's no question that he died. And then a few days later, James has a conversation with his brother again. A few days later, Jesus shows up live and in person, risen from the grave, and the evidence was enough to convince James, who knew Jesus about as well as anybody else did, the evidence was enough to convince James that his brother had in fact risen from the grave. And James dedicated the rest of his life to telling people, that guy that grew up in my house, my brother, he's also my king. 
This was what the rest of James's life was all about. So he's got this unique perspective. He's got a perspective that he's, he's, he's so incredibly unique out of all of the people who were in Jesus's orbit. And after all of his experiences, all of the moments that he reflected on, everything he heard from Jesus, all of the conversations he had, the thing that James was most passionate about was making sure that people knew that when you follow Jesus, your walk ought to match your talk. He was passionate about convincing people to try to match their words with their actions, to not say one thing and do the other. I mean, we hate that kind of hypocrisy, right? And James did too. This was James's passion, was he wanted people to actually not only say that they believed in Jesus, but to live like they believed in Jesus. This is what he was all about. In fact, over the years, sometimes Christians who have studied this book, this letter that we call James, Sometimes people have assumed that it contradicts some of the other messages in the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul. We've studied a lot about Paul in this series, and Paul goes to great lengths to convince us that salvation is the result of faith in Jesus and nothing else, that it requires nothing but faith in Jesus. And there have been some Bible students over the years, over the centuries, who have read James and they thought that James was saying, well, you gotta put in a little bit of effort. You gotta put in a little bit of work and you could see how those messages clash with one another, but that's not what James was saying. James did not believe in works-based salvation. In fact, James and Paul were addressing totally different topics. Paul, on the one hand, he was addressing people who thought that their faith was not gonna be helpful, it was not gonna be adequate because they needed to earn their salvation. James, on the other hand, he was talking about the connection between our thoughts and our deeds. He was saying real faith always includes real action. And so for James, the action that matters the most is the act of loving other people, loving others as you love yourself. Remember, this is the guy who believed and was convinced that his brother was the king, his king. And since he believed that Jesus was the king, and since Jesus said that loving God and loving your neighbor are the most important commandments, in fact, everything else hinges on those two, James refers to loving your neighbor as the royal law. He says, loving your neighbor is the law that our king has given us. It is the commandment that is most important to our king, my brother, Jesus. And James knew that one of the easiest ways to violate or break the royal law was to use your words in anger. And so throughout this letter, I mean, it's only five chapters long. It's one of the shorter letters in our Bible. But throughout this letter, James keeps coming back to this same theme, talking about the way that we speak to one another. It starts off in chapter one. He says, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. 
and slow to become angry, slow to grow angry. And already, even in chapter one, he's pointing out the danger of being somebody who's too reactive, somebody who's too harsh, somebody who reacts too quickly. And then later, he touches on this same subject again in chapter three, this time much more thoroughly. And he talks about how challenging it is for humans to control their speech, to control their tongue. Here's one of the ways he puts it. He says, people can tame and already have tamed every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue, he says. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And then he points out this problem. He says, with our tongues, with our mouth, we both bless the Lord and Father and we curse human beings who are made in God's likeness. He says, blessing and cursing come out of the very same mouth. It's like we don't know how to use this thing right. He says, brothers and sisters, it should not be this way. And at this point, James is really leaning in and starting to explain the power and the peril of the human voice. Because like you do, he knows that the human voice is capable of doing great things, right? It's capable of doing incredible things, but it's also capable of inflicting great pain and causing real damage. And it's this duality, this hypocrisy that James is really concerned about. Because remember, James wants to help us get our words and our actions to sync up with one another, that we would actually walk the talk and talk the walk. He's wanting us to get our lives to be you know, in sync in every aspect because it's, it's possible to say you have faith, but if your faith is just a statement and not a lifestyle, then what is that really? And so James is looking for consistency in the way we speak to one another. And even though the letter's not all that long, he finds it important to come back a third time to this same topic. And we're going to camp out for a few minutes in these, in these two verses. James chapter 4, starting in verse 11, listen to what he has to say. He says, brothers and sisters, don't say evil things about each other. And if you've been reading this entire letter at this point, you read that sentence and you're thinking, okay, James, it kind of seems like you've touched on that before. You're repeating yourself, but check out the next sentence because he takes a surprising turn here. He says, whoever insults or criticizes a brother or sister insults and criticizes the law. All right, now I, that does not initially compute for me. That does not initially make a whole lot of sense because if I say something bad about someone else, it doesn't seem like that has anything to do with any particular law that I know of. But remember that when James talks about the law, he's not talking about the same law that Paul so typically wrote about, the law of Moses that was handed down to the Israelites hundreds of years earlier. And when James writes about the law, he's not talking about civil laws and statutes that are put in place by legislators and governors. When James talks about the law, he's talking about the royal law. He's talking about the law of King Jesus. He's talking about the law that his brother handed down, the law of King Jesus that says each of us should love God to the best of our ability and love our neighbors the way we love ourselves. 
So when James talks about the law and he says, if you insult a brother or sister, you're insulting and criticizing the law. What he's saying is you're criticizing the words of Jesus. This is why James says our insults and our criticisms of people are actually critiques of the law because when we choose to ignore what Jesus had to say, when we choose to ignore the royal law to love our neighbor, we are judging the law. It's like we're saying that law doesn't always apply to me. That law is not really set in stone. That law is not really as consistent as Jesus indicated. When we ignore or sit in judgment on this law, we're saying that love your neighbor as yourself is one of those rules that you can ignore from time to time. It's like one of those rules that was made to be broken. It's like we're saying that King Jesus probably meant for there to be an asterisk at the end of that one that said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself unless they've done something to not deserve it. But that's not what Jesus said. We're the ones who can find loopholes in every single rule, but this is not a rule that Jesus left any loopholes in. The person that speaks evil about another person is saying with their actions, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. Jesus was not being realistic. Jesus was being naive. Jesus was being utopian, too optimistic. In fact, James goes on to say in the next sentence in that same verse, verse 11, if you find fault with the law, the royal law, the King Jesus law, then you're not a doer of the law. You're a judge over the law. Now, this is a serious allegation, but we all know what it's like to pick and choose which laws we're going to follow, right? We all know what it's like to decide that one applies to me and that one doesn't. Drive through my neighborhood for a second and you'll quickly notice that some of the people in my neighborhood have decided there are some HOA regulations that apply to them and some HOA regulations that are only for everybody else. We know what it's like to pick and choose different laws that apply to us, but James is telling us that this selective obedience this picking and choosing, it doesn't work in the kingdom of Jesus. He's saying, if you pick and choose, you're not letting Jesus be in charge. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 12, he says, there is only one lawgiver. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and he, Jesus, is able to save and able to destroy. But you who judge your neighbor, who are you? Who are you? No, really. Who, who are you to think that you could decide which rules apply to you and which ones don't? And it's a good question. Who are you? And maybe the even better question is, if you're who you think you are, then who does that make Jesus? Who does that leave Jesus to be? And it's an important question because I think this is the question that's at the heart of Christian discipleship. This is the question that you're going to spend your entire spiritual life deciding. The spiritual life is all about deciding for yourself every day whether you are going to be the Lord of your life or whether Jesus gets to be the Lord of your life. And it's a repeating decision. It's an ongoing decision. Some of us think, okay, well, I made that decision back when I decided to become a follower of Jesus. I made that decision when I confessed Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I made that decision when I was baptized. And that's true, but that was the first time you made it. And you got to make it again. 
In fact, every day when you wake up, you got to decide again and again and again, am I going to be Lord of my life or does Jesus get to be in charge? This is the question. And Jesus didn't give us a whole bunch of rules to follow. Jesus satisfied the requirements of the old Mosaic law that was handed down to the Israelites. Jesus satisfied the requirements of the law on our behalf. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves when it comes to obeying religious laws. But Jesus did give us one new command. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. He says, so just as I have loved you, you should love one another. This is the royal law. This is the King Jesus law. If we're going to be part of Jesus's movement, if we're going to be Jesus people, if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be involved in the kingdom of Jesus, this is the law. Love one another. This is the commandment. You know, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus himself said, it's not what goes into a person's mouth that contaminates a person in God's sight. And he was talking to a bunch of people who had spent their entire lives being really careful about every morsel of food they ever ate because they wanted to make sure that it was ritually clean and pure and kosher. He was talking to people who were really sensitive about what they ate, and he was telling them, listen, you're not ever going to become unclean because of what you put in your mouth. But you will become unclean. You will be contaminated by what comes out of your mouth. It's what comes out of a person's mouth that contaminates them. And this decision, the decision we have to make is, do we believe that Jesus knew what he was talking about? When Jesus made this statement, do we believe that he actually could be right? Do we believe that he has the authority to make that decision, to make that distinction? The decision we've got to make is, who is Jesus really? We've got to decide for ourselves on Jesus's identity and whether Jesus has the authority to tell us how to treat other people or not. Because if Jesus does have the authority, if Jesus really is in that position of respect, that position of privilege, that position of honor, then it puts guardrails on the words that come out of our mouth. If Jesus really is in charge, then it puts some limitations and some restrictions. And we got to be cautious about how we speak to other people if Jesus is really in charge. But if Jesus is not in charge... If Jesus is not really the authority, if we think that we know better, if we believe that the situation calls for us to speak with judgment or to be critical or to share hate, then we need to be aware that those kind of words don't just hurt our horizontal relationships. They, they actually reveal the weakness of our vertical relationship too. If we're the kind of people who speak with hatred, judgment, and criticism of others, it reveals that the connection between us and God is messed up. It's broken. Because if we trust in Jesus, then we have to trust that Jesus knows better than we do how we should live and how we should speak and how we should behave. And Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another with no asterisk at the end. There was a very famous Anglican priest in England. He died 11 years ago, John Stott. 
And he said this, he said, the secret of our relationships with one another inside the church, especially when we have our differences, the secret to these relationships is this phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, which means Jesus Christ is in charge. He went on and he said, to despise or stand in judgment of a fellow Christian, that's not just a breach of fellowship. That's not just a breach of horizontal relationships. It's a denial of the Lordship of Jesus. He said, I need to tell myself, who am I that I should cast myself in the role of another Christian's Lord and judge? I must be willing for Jesus Christ to be not only my Lord and judge, but also the fellow Christian's Lord and judge. And I must not interfere with Christ's Lordship over other Christians. He said, I can't decide. I can't be the one who uses my words to try to fix everybody else, to try to correct everybody else. I gotta be the person who's using my words to be loving. And you know, growing up in church, we had an old song we used to sing together, try to remind ourselves of how important this was. It was this old song with like ancient vocabulary. It sounded like it was written 150 years ago because it was written 150 years ago. But when I make myself concentrate on the old lyrics to this song rather than just glazing over, there's a lot of wisdom in this old song that said, angry words, oh, let them never from the tongue unbridled slip. What that means is don't ever let angry words come out of my mouth totally out of control. And then the second line in that stanza said, may the heart's best impulse ever, may the best inclinations of my heart check my angry words. May they control my angry words before they soil my lips. May the heart's best impulse ever check them ere they soil the lip. And then the chorus said, love one another. Thus saith the Savior. This is what Jesus said. This is like the one command that Jesus said, I need you to do this, love one another. And then it said, let us obey the father's blessed command. This is hard. It's not going to be easy. This is going to be a constant challenge. That's why James kept bringing it up. That's why Jesus talked about it. The apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4, 29, he said, don't let any foul words come out of your mouth and only say what's helpful when it's needed for building up the community so that it benefits those who hear what you say. Can you imagine what it would be like if we decided to be the people whose words only built community? That we only use words in a way that will encourage connection and unification. We only use words in ways that will strengthen the bonds between people. Can you imagine what it would be like? That's, that's tough to imagine. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard because we're people with weak willpower. We're we're people who have been injured ourselves. We're people who are defensive. It's going to be challenging to take this as our mission and say, we're going to be the kind of people who use our words for the benefit of others. That's going to be hard. But I got one hint that I think could help us get there. And my one tip, my one suggestion 
for how we can always remind ourselves of how to speak in ways that are beneficial and encouraging is this. Remember how Jesus speaks to you. You know how Jesus speaks to you? Some of you don't. Because some of you assume that because of Jesus' high status, because of Jesus' glory, some of you assume that because of the place that Jesus has been given, the place of honor and authority in all of the universe, some of you assume that when Jesus looks at you, there's immediate condemnation and judgment. Some of you assume that when Jesus looks at you, Jesus does that and gets frustrated and rolls his eyes and thinks, them again. But I need to tell you, that's not what Jesus, that's not how Jesus speaks to you. Because when Jesus thinks about you, Jesus smiles. And when Jesus thinks about your name, it makes Jesus' heart happy. And Jesus' words to you have nothing to do with where you've been or what you've done or who you are or who you were. Jesus' words to you are always, come follow me. Come with me. Just come with me and trust me. Jesus' words to you are always, are you tired? I know. Are you worn out? Are you overtaxed? Are you overworked? Are you overburdened? Are you burnt out? I know. Come to me and I'll give you rest. These are always Jesus's words to you. And your assumption might be that Jesus's posture towards you looks like this, or that it looks like this. But the reality is that Jesus's posture towards you looks like this. And he says, I'm not angry at you. I love you. Love one another. And we've got to be reminded of this in more tangible ways than just having me say it. And so every single week when we gather together, we participate in a moment to remind each other about Jesus's posture and Jesus's invitation toward us. We call this moment the Lord's Supper or the communion. If you've never done this before, I promise it's super simple. You can't mess it up. There, it, all it is, is it's a little piece of plain old cracker and a little cup of grape juice it's so simple and that's on purpose. But Jesus told us when you get together and you eat this little piece of bread and you drink this cup of juice, just remember that this is my posture toward you. Remember that you're loved. Remember that love was given to you first so that you could share it. Remember, remember, remember.